0: Well, it is time to grow. It's time to open God's Word to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. A book of wisdom, as we spoke of last week. If you're joining us for the first time today, you're here on the right day because we're starting a new exposition of a book of Scripture. A new verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this book, the writer is, just in the first two verses, introducing his first main topic. Like any good preacher, he has an intriguing introduction, an introduction that draws you in, that makes you want to know, first of all, what he means, even in these first two verses, but also how that ties in to the rest of the book. So I'll just read the first two verses to you. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This book raises many questions for us. It will answer some, but not all. It makes us think about questions like, how should we consider life? How should we think about our life in particular? How much can we trust in our own wisdom? How much can we trust in the wisdom that we learn from others in this life? Why does our work seem hard? Why does work seem so fleeting? Why is it the money we make gets spent so fast? Why is it as soon as we have a paycheck in our pockets, we're spending it, our children are needing it, our spouse is using it? Uh, Why do the wicked seem blessed? And yet the righteous, it should be that God's people, the righteous should be blessed, but they seem to be punished. They seem to suffer. Uh, What about death? How should we think about death? What's the right view of death in this life? What about inheritance? What about working hard all your life to leave something for someone else? What about our children? What about fame and fortune, pleasure, money, food, drink, enjoyment, marriage, youth? That's just a small sampling of what the book is going to hit on. This is a challenging book if you've ever read through it. You should have by this week. If you were here last week, I encourage you to read through it. It'll take less than 30 minutes. Read through the book and see for yourself. It's challenging. It's difficult. In fact, many others have commented on this throughout the centuries. They've said it's one of the most difficult books of the Bible. Others say it seems to contradict other biblical teachings. Others say it faces life as it really is. One commentator said, Perhaps the most enigmatic book of the Old Testament, like the desert sphinx, it teases us with questions. It yields its secrets only grudgingly. I will not allow us the luxury of easy answers. In other words, it's thoroughly irritating, he says. It makes a lot of scholars mad because they can't get an easy understanding, a quick understanding of it. He says, thoroughly irritating, but at the same time, almost mesmeric in its appeal. It draws us toward it by mirroring the perplexity we all feel as we grapple with life. Uh, David Gibson, who's written a, a great book on this called Living Life Backwards, He says, in my opinion, part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers. Life slips through our fingers. It eludes our comprehension by being itself elusive and perplexing. Is there a better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you doing the same? It does cause us to scratch our head as we read this. We just wonder, what is he saying? Why is he saying it? Is it it pessimistic? Is it negative? Others have said it's one of the greatest masterpieces of all literature. Just looking looking at it from a literature, literary perspective. One of the most misunderstood books of the Bible as well. Leland Ryken said it's one of the most moving books in all literature. Even the writer Herman Melville said it's the truest of all books. Because it points to reality. Thomas Wolfe, the novelist, said it's the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. Anyone to whom the book of Ecclesiastes is not a puzzle has not read it yet. It's puzzling. It's enigmatic. It's eluding. It's, it's a mist. It's a vapor. Walt Kaiser, a known Old Testament scholar, said it's the best news around, though, for such baffled and confused postmodern men and women. No book of the Bible has been so maligned and so misunderstood as the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. The most frequent assessment of the book is summed up in such negative terms. People call it nihilistic, pessimistic, fatalistic, skeptical, cynical, materialistic, experimental, and the like. So what is this book about? Well, it's about a journey. It's about taking us on a journey. Taking us on a journey through a man's life who searched out the answers to these questions. Particularly, the meaning of life, what's it all about? Where should we spend our time, our energy, our focus? The writer, Solomon, wants to take us on a journey, on a tour of what he has learned in his life, and what it is about. What is the purpose, the meaning of life? And what about living before God? So the first thing we need to talk about is the preacher of wisdom. He introduces himself as the preacher. Who is, number one, the preacher of wisdom? And he's introducing the book for us here. Uh, A good introduction. If you go to the bookstore and you you pull out a book, if you're like me, you look at the table of contents. If it's a nonfiction book, you want to know what is this book about? And usually you get an idea from the first chapter. The name of the first chapter sometimes will tell you. Then you go to the back of the book. You have a look at that. And then you kind of look in between and see what are these chapters about from the first one to the last one. Well, the writer here, Solomon, tells us what his book is about, or at least the first main topic. And he says, the words, the words here just means the teachings, the sayings, the thing he's going to teach us, the words of the preacher. Now, he doesn't say Solomon. You won't find the name Solomon anywhere in this book. That's very interesting because if it's a book about his life, why doesn't he mention himself. The word preacher here is called koheleth in Hebrew. koheleth It's not a person's name, but it's a title. It's built on the verb to call an assembly. So koheleth is a person who gathers people into an assembly for the purpose of addressing them. To gather a group together to address them, to teach them, to proclaim to them. In fact, that's what the name of the book is called in Hebrew. They often just call it by the first word that shows up, or one of the first words that shows up in the book. And they just refer to it as koheleth And many commentators today, even in English, will call the book that as well. It's built on the verb to call an assembly, and in Greek, an assembly is ekklesia, where we eventually get the word church from. In the New Testament, an ekklesia is an assembly of God's people. But it can also be an assembly of anyone. And that comes over, ekklesia, the person who calls an ecclesia into Latin and then English as Ecclesiastes. Now many people debate what the Koholeth means. Does it mean preacher? Some say teacher. Some say the gatherer. Some say this is just a debater, a a philosophical debater, a philosopher who's calling people to listen to his debate. Sinclair Ferguson said maybe the modern college professor would work better. I think the word preacher works best because the goal of his book is to teach something. It's to teach godly wisdom. It's to teach biblical thinking. It's to teach us how to think right about the world as we live in it under God's authority. Particularly for believers. How do you as a believer <laughs> who's looking towards heaven and eternity where all things will be made perfect, how do you live in this world when things are not perfect? When you're not perfect? And everything you touch seems to fall apart. So he is preaching. I, I like the word preacher. I think that's fine. And he wants to preach a message. He wants to enlighten his audience about the importance of wisdom, which includes teaching them about who we are and who God is. John Calvin starts off his institutes. If you pick up his institutes on the Christian religion, he starts off with those two topics, who we are and who God is. He says all knowledge really comes from those two things. You need to understand who you are and who God is. And that is what the preacher here, Kohelet Solomon, is going to teach us. Well, who is he? Who who is Kohelet? Who wrote this book? It's King Solomon. It's obvious to me. But almost no one in the conservative and liberal scholarship today believes it's Solomon. It's almost as if you don't put the guy's name in there and people will come up with all kinds of theories about who wrote it. And even when Paul puts his name in the letters in the New Testament, all these scholars attack it and say, Paul didn't write whatever letter that we would be studying. Well, he tells us who he is, doesn't he? Look at number verse 1. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, Christians and, and Jews have thought Solomon was the author for centuries. 17 1,800 years. It wasn't until the 18th and 19th centuries when suddenly, due to historical criticism, people started pulling apart God's Word. They started pulling apart everything that they could and trying to look at it from a humanistic standpoint. So even most conservative scholars today question whether Solomon wrote the book. Some think there's two writers, two voices, three voices, four voices. People just chop it up all kinds of different ways. Which ought to clue you in that people are having a hard time understanding the book. They're having a hard time putting it all together. I mean, you can't put it all together. You just say, well, this person's talking here and this other person's talking here. But no, it's one author. God, ultimately, he even says at the end of the book, one shepherd has given him these words. That's God. And it's one voice. And it's one person, King Solomon. He says, he is the son of David. Let's examine that and see if that holds up? Does the book hold up to Solomon writing it? Well, the word son here for son of David, it can be used in the Old Testament for a distant relative, a grandson, great-grandson. The sons of Israel were many times, they were multiple generations from Israel himself. But whenever son of David, that phrase is used everywhere else in the Bible, it's always used to speak of a biological son, a descendant of David, the first generation of biological descendants. So David had many sons. Which one is it? Well, again, he tells us, king in Jerusalem. King in Jerusalem. Also look down at verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now there's only two kings who ever reigned from Jerusalem over the whole nation of Israel. David, can't be David because this is the son of David, and Solomon. Solomon's son, as soon as he gets the throne, he ends up dividing the empire because of his foolishness, because he won't listen to the elders. He listens to his young friends, makes stupid mistakes, and the kingdom gets divided. It's not David writing here. The only other person would fit would be Solomon. In fact, Proverbs 1, verse 1. This is how the book of Proverbs starts. And that's clearly written by Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Go over to chapter 12 and verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, Koheleth also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many Proverbs. He didn't just write them. He didn't just say them. He arranged them. That means he put them in the writing and arranged them. wonder who that could be. The preacher sought to find delightful words And to write words of truth correctly. And of course, the book of Proverbs starts out the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Seems to match up well. Of course, that's often not enough for people to believe that it is Solomon. Just historically speaking, the the Jews and and early Christians wouldn't have accepted it if it was somebody else. The thing about Christianity and, and even the Jewish religion, Judaism, is they like to know who wrote it. And if it's not, A prophet or an apostle, it better be someone that's at least overseen by a prophet and an apostle. And someone faking, because that's often what they say, is that this is a writer who's kind of acting like he's Solomon. He's writing from the Solomonic perspective, many hundreds of years later, closer to Jesus. They would have never accepted that. A person appearing to be Solomon would not have been recognized. Solomon often did gather people together for worship. This book is not a worship context. It's more of a a teaching or a preaching. But he did gather people. This exact Hebrew verb, to gather, to assemble, is used in 1 Kings 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the leaders, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, households of the sons, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David. So he often called people together for worship, for prayer, For building the temple, for installing the ark into the temple. And as we'll see as we work throughout the book, nothing, no one else really matches this man Solomon. Look at Ecclesiastes one sixteen, And think about who else in the Bible could this be? I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Well, Solomon was said to be the wisest person who had ever lived before Jesus Christ. So if this isn't Solomon, this person's lying because they're saying they're wiser than anybody who's ever been over Jerusalem. Of course it's Solomon 2 9, Ecclesiastes 2 9, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me, preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Solomon had great wisdom. We'll look at that in the book when he talks about how he chased down wisdom and what that meant for him. Also, what about his works? Well, this writer here, Koheleth, says in chapter 2, verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself in which to irrigate the forest and the growing trees. Solomon built, he built a palace that was larger than the temple. He built the temple to God. He expanded cities. He rebuilt cities that were in disrepair. He built storage cities. Just for his army, he built cities so that his army could live in. Chapter 2, verse 7, I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. No one had more slaves than Solomon. It says in 1 Kings that he had 30,000 just captured men from those he fought against. Why is this important? You say, why, why am I making a big deal? Because if we don't take Solomon as the author, it can really change our interpretation throughout the book. Who is this person who had that much wisdom if it wasn't Solomon? It can change the way we put the verses into context for the historical context and the context of the whole Bible. Also, wealth. He says there in 2.8, chapter two eight, also I collected myself for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers, pleasures of men, many concubines. That's right there enough to tell us it was Solomon. He had a thousand wives and concubines. Later he'll use the word thousand to describe women later in the book. Also the Proverbs that I mentioned there in twelve. 9-10. through ten. Who else wrote many words and arranged Proverbs? It can only be Solomon. So if we deny that, we're not going to be able to place the book in the right perspective. But you might be saying, wait a second, I know Proverbs is written by Solomon. Song of Songs probably written by Solomon. But didn't Solomon turn away in his old age? Yeah, go to 1 Kings. We'll go backwards in your Bible, to 1 Kings. And let's see if we can't learn a lesson here about backsliders, and God's ability to restore. 1 Kings eleven four, For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away after other gods. And he devoted himself, wholly devoted himself. Not to God, not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is the east of Jerusalem and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifice to their God. Now there's no... Scripture in the Bible that says Solomon repented and turned back. You can read the whole Old Testament, you won't find that. At least by name, he's not said to have turned back. We do know a very evil king, a descendant of his named Manasseh, who was very evil. In Second Chronicles, it says Manasseh at the end of his life prayed to the Lord, the Lord heard him, the Lord forgave him. More evil than Solomon was Manasseh, and yet he was forgiven. I think like Jonah, we should take Ecclesiastes, and this is how many have taken it, as Solomon's book of repentance. That Solomon wrote a book just as he was coming out of this, just as God had restored him. We don't know how long he went into this building up idols and idol worship places on the mountains. It doesn't necessarily say he was really involved in that, other than he went up with his wives. You notice the text kept saying, with his wives, for his wives. He let... The women in his life lead him into that sin. So I think like Jonah, because at the end of the book of Jonah, it doesn't end well for Jonah. Jonah's still mad at God. Jonah's very angry at God for saving people. Where's Jonah's repentance? It's not there. But somebody wrote the book called Jonah and cast himself in a pretty bad light. Solomon, if he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, cast himself in a really bad light because he says, I did these things. I chased after these things. So I think it's right to take him as the writer and put this later in his life after he has repented, after God has restored him. The old commentator Matthew Henry says that in Ecclesiastes, he conceals his name Solomon, which means peaceable. That's the name Solomon. It means peaceable. Because by his sin, he had brought trouble upon himself and his kingdom. He had broken his peace with God and therefore was no more worthy of that name. So if we're to put the three wisdom books that Solomon wrote, or wisdom and poetry books in order, it would be Song of Songs or Song of Solomon in his youth. His first wife, his first marriage. He celebrates marriage. Then in middle life, before he turned his heart away from God, he wrote Proverbs the way life should be, the things that he had learned from God and from observing God's creation about how we should live and how things work in the normal way of life, according to God's creation. But then later in life, in his old age, probably near the very end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes about all that he had learned and about all the sins and mistakes that he had made because he had not lived according to all the wisdom that God had given him. So probably somewhere around 940 to 930 B.C. What better writer, though, to write this book? Ordained by God to write about his life. Most of us wouldn't give this kind of testimony, go into this kind of detail, go into all the struggles that we've had in our mind about what God is doing in the world. What better person to write this book other than Solomon? the wisest man who ever lived, who went after every sin imaginable that he could get his hands on. And yet, here's what he learned. Here's what he learned. He's put down in a book for us to read. An old Scottish pastor of the 1800s said, the book becomes one of great interest as the production of an aged man who in early life gave evidence of piety. That's godliness. Who had enjoyed the greatest worldly prosperity, who fell into great sin, but the evening of his life was marked by the most sincere repentance. That's what we want to see, isn't it? With backsliders. Maybe we've been the backslider. Maybe we've learned our lessons the hard way, like Solomon. Maybe when we read through this book and study it, we're going to see ourselves a lot in here. Maybe we know a backslider. And we're praying that they'll end up like Solomon here, and turning from their sin, and learning the lessons that God wants them to learn. But either way, we're going to learn that sin's not worth it, and that God has other plans for us. Other things we need to focus on instead of pleasures of this world. So that comes to number two. This is the big point that we want to look at. The message of how to view life. If Solomon was the preacher of wisdom. Okay, what kind of wisdom is he going to teach us? The wisdom of how to view life. He's got one major point, And he is going to teach us. That major point is, here's how you should view life. By the end of the book, he will have told us a certain way to view life. Now, I have to tell you, this book has been tortured and twisted by so many scholars, pastors, well-meaning believers, certainly unbelievers. So many people try to force a main message into the book, their own view. They'll pick one verse maybe to prove their point. I read one commentator, he had 60 pages on how he took one verse and tested all the other commentators by that one interpretation of a verse. One single verse. Even Martin Luther in his day was frustrated with that. He was sick and tired of people twisting Ecclesiastes. He said this book, one which no one has ever completely mastered, indeed has been so distorted by the miserable commentaries of many writers that it's almost a bigger job to purify and defend the author from the notions which they have smuggled into him than it is to show his real meaning. If you ever seek to teach or study this book in detail, you'll spend more time hearing about what people thought he said that he didn't actually say than you want to. And certainly we don't want to spend more time doing that than we do studying the text itself. So more than any other book, we've got to get a big picture. A big picture of the book. Otherwise, we're going to get into the individual text and it's going to confuse us. We're going to say that doesn't really sound like the rest of the Old Testament. That doesn't sound like what Jesus said. So we have to get a bird's eye view. We have to see the the forest before we get into the trees. If we fail to interpret the individual verses in Ecclesiastes in light of their context, in light of their framework, then we'll lose the true meaning. It can be even disastrous. Some people have read this and said that it's so contradictory, they don't believe in the Bible anymore. Now, we know if God has changed a person's heart, they will believe this is scripture. But we ought not to confuse ourselves or others by twisting his message. Like any good preacher, he's got three points. Three points. It's an old preacher's joke. Somebody, some Baptist preacher must have said, you got to have three points because of the Trinity or something like that. So we always joke about three points in a poem. You can have two points like we've got here today or more. But he has three main points. We want to look at these. What are the three main points? The first one, he tells us right here. And this is where people usually get off track because they stop with just number one. The first message, the first point of his message on how to view life is life is a fleeting vapor. It's a vapor. It's here and gone. It's a mist. Now, how our translation says it, Yours might be a little bit different, but the NASB, following the King James, says, Vanity of vanities, says Kohele, the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's his first point. That's an exciting point, right? Not too many people would come to church and, and want to hear the bad news right up front. Jesus often did that, though, didn't he? He would tell you the bad news first. The gospel leads off with the bad news first. This is the bad news. It's used five times just in this one verse. You see that? Just, if you just go with vanity for right now, how many times do you see the word vanity? Five times. Now, behind the word vanity is the Hebrew word hebel or hevel. So H-E-B-E-L. And the B is kind of soft like a V. So hevel. Hevel. We're going to talk a lot about hevel. This is how it would sound in Hebrew. Hevel hevelim, says Koala. Hevel hevelim. Everything is hevel. Same thing if you go to chapter 12, verse 8. So he starts the book off with this, and he almost finishes it, but not quite. It's not quite the end. Many people think this is the end. They stop and don't don't go on. But 12, 8, same thing. Hevel, hevelim, says the preacher. Everything is hevel. The King James, following the, the Latin Vulgate, The Latin vogue had been used for a thousand years in the Roman Catholic Church. And the King James was bringing now the word into English, trying to make it sound good. And often they would follow a tradition that was before them. They did the best they could with what they had, but they translated it as vanity. There's a problem with that, though. Vanity today is what? That's excessive pride. That's standing in front of the mirror, thinking you're the best looking person in the world. Thinking that you're the smartest. There's certainly some of that in this book. We're going to talk about that. That's not really the meaning of the word here. Now, the King James translators used it because back then, vanity meant worthless or futile. And that's getting a little bit closer. Other translations will use futile or futility. You might even see in your footnotes a futility of futilities. That's getting closer to the meaning. It's hard in Hebrew to get the meaning of this in English exactly. The people who use futility would say, It's saying that everything is pointless, everything is futile, everything is useless. Is that really the meaning of this book? Is that theme proved out all the way to the end? That everything is useless in life, just fear God. Is that what he's getting at? Now, if you start off with that assumption, then you'll come to that conclusion in many places. That's more negative, though, and and even even more negative is meaningless, the NIV. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's even more pessimistic. No wonder people take the book so pessimistic if you start off that way, right? Everything, everything in life is horrible. It's meaningless. Sounds like one of my kids sometimes when they're throwing a temper tantrum, right? Everybody hates me. Everything is pointless. We're going to look at some verses with this word hevel, but here's its basic meaning. Everything has a basic meaning, and then it's built on it in the Bible, sometimes metaphorically. So its basic meaning is breath, a vapor. Hevel just means breath, vapor. Not quite spirit or wind, but but more of a breath. What what comes out of your mouth on a cold day, if you walked outside right now, and you were breathing, you would see breath, vapor. Let's look at some verses on that. Psalm 39, if you want to turn to these, and go through them with me. It would help you to see, because sometimes it's not translated breath. Now, these first few, it will be. But that's sort of the problem with Hebel, is it's not always translated breath. Even in Ecclesiastes, it's used 38 times, and only a couple of times is it translated vapor. Mostly it's vanity or futility. Psalm 39, verse 5. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths. That's a measurement, not breath that we breathe. And my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. See what he's saying? At our best, we're just a mere breath. We're a vapor. Selah, surely every man walks about as a phantom. By the way, Selah is just stop and think about that. People debate what Selah means, but as we read through the Psalms and scripture reading, I think the best interpretation is just stop and meditate on what I just said. And so he places the Selah right here after Man is just, a, at best, a mere breath, a hevel. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. This sounds like Ecclesiastes already. Verse 11 of Psalm 39. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath, hevel. Everybody is just a breath, just a hevel. Psalm 144, verse 3. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Now, this is a recurring question in wisdom literature. Asking God, who are we that you even acknowledge us? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere hevel, breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So already seeing that this word has more to do with How short we're here. Uh, The time span is very transient, very temporary. But a Job 7. Same thing with Job. Uh, Job's in anguish. He's lost everything. He's questioning God. And near the beginning of his book in Job 7 verse 16, he says, I waste away. I will not live forever. So that's the context here. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are but a breath. My days are but a hevel. They're here, they're gone. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? We're so short-lived, God. Why do you even take any any time with us? And they're not necessarily saying God is wrong. They're just saying, we're nothing. We're here one day and gone the next. You're you're forever, God. You're eternal. Proverbs 30 and verse 31 uses Hevel as well, but you won't see it in most translations. Uh, speaking of the... A godly woman charm is deceitful and beauty is heaven beauty is vain is how it's translated but that that gives you the idea that beauty is vain just look in the mirror at yourself no beauty is fleeting beauty is a breath you have it when you're young and then it gets more and more difficult to maintain that as you age but a woman who fears the Lord she shall be praised a similar idea is found in Psalm 103 verse 15. This is not using the word Hevel. There's many, many uses in the Old Testament. But here's the idea. Psalm 103:15. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more and its place acknowledges it no longer. We're here one day, we're gone the next. I've done three funerals in the last eight weeks. You know the, this, the thing that's common in every funeral? The person's dead that you're having a funeral for. They were here one day, and they were gone the next. It's temporary. It's, it's short. It's fast. Life is fast. It seems to speed up more and more, doesn't it, for those of us as we age? What has happened? Where did my hair go? Where did my nice, colorful hair go? Now it's turning gray, right? Where did my muscles go? Where did all these things go? When I was young, I had them, and now it's fleeting, fleeting. James 4.14, if you want a New Testament passage, this is it. James is the book of wisdom in the New Testament. We studied that a few years ago in the Bible studies, but James is the book of wisdom in the New Testament. In James 4.14, he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, James is written in Greek, not Hebrew, but he's carrying forward this same idea that we're finding in the Old Testament. You're just a vapor. A vapor's there, and then it's gone. You can't grab it. You can't hold on to it. Sometimes this word hevel in the Old Testament is used for idols. Frank was talking about uh, idols and how Israel worshipped idols. Jeremiah 8.19 says, Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with their foreign hevels, with their foreign idols? Why? Why why would hevel be used as an idol? Because an idol is like a breath. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. It's here one day. It's gone the next. But God lives forever. The one true God is forever. But an idol? It's going to be the same with other things that we see that uh, fall into idolatry with today. Money. Possessions. Here one day. Gone. The next. What are we going to do with that idea? Well Solomon's going to open it up. So the basic idea of heaven is breath. But it's used metaphorically to speak of man's life. In many of these passages. And sometimes about our work. And sometimes about our possessions. They're quick. They pass away. There's no permanence in these things. Is what he's saying. It's frustrating in life. Is how he starts off the book. Because things are fleeting. Everything in life seems to be so fleeting. Under the sun. It's like a puff of smoke. When you blow out a candle. It's like seeing your breath on a cold day. Like a whisper in the wind. It's here one second. It's gone the next it's fleeting, ephemeral. When I was younger, six or seven, before I gained much wisdom, we used to get ready for school. And my mom would start the car on a day like this to take us to school because we couldn't walk. You know, back then it was too cold to walk. So she would start the car and there would be all this exhaust coming out the back. She would say, y'all go get in the car. I'll be out in a second. What we wanted to do is not get in the car, but jump through that exhaust and try to grab it over and over. You know, this was before we had wisdom. Back when Things weren't even filtered as they came out of the car very well. So, you know, telling what we uh, breathed in, but we thought we could try to catch some of that, maybe get it on us, and we never could. We would just jump through it back and forth because it was come out and be gone. That's hevel; it's just gone. It's gone. Proverbs twenty-one six: the acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting hevel, a fleeting vapor, is our translation. The pursuit of death. That's what he wrote in Proverbs. Before he went and did the very thing he said don't do, he wrote that it was a fleeting vapor. Now this is translated correctly a couple times in Ecclesiastes 9.9. 9, if you look at that. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. That's heaven Enjoy her all the days of your fleeting life which God has given to you under the sun. And then chapter 11 verse 10 this is in the NASB. Others might might do it a bit different, but 11.10. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are hevel, fleeting. They're gone. You're young and then it's gone. The prime of life, your 20s, maybe your 30s, and then that passes. It's fleeting. It happens so quickly. So what does this word mean for us if we apply it to this book? It means that all things on earth are short-lived. Transitory. They lack any lasting substance. There's no permanence. There's no worth. There's no value if we sink our life into those things. They don't last. They're temporary. Ephemeral. It's interesting. The first time this word is used is a person's name in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 4. There's a guy that we know by the name of Abel. But his name in Hebrew, you know what that is? Hebel. His name is Hebel. I don't know why his mom called him vapor or mist. I don't think she knew that he wasn't going to live long. But what happened to Abel? What happened to Hebel? He was killed by his brother. His life was here and gone. It was a mist, a vapor. Maybe she understood that once they were kicked out of the garden because of their sin, that life would be like a mist, like a vapor, like a breath. So she named her son Hevel. Solomon's going to take us through this book and he's going to tell us many things that are transitory, that are Hevel, that are temporary, that are like a breath. And he's using that word metaphorically. He's going to say human wisdom, you know what that is? Hevel. Human labor, Hevel. Human purpose, Hevel, a breath. Rivalry, politics, a breath. Avarice, greed, fame, Man's inability to be satisfied, human coveting, human frivolity, human awards, it's all just a breath. It's frustrating because it's there and gone. Now, this isn't just an Old Testament theme. It's picked up a few times in the New. Uh, Romans 8.20 is a key verse here. Paul's talking here and he's he's working through who we are in Christ and how there's no condemnation in Christ. And he says in Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility futility not not that god made everybody frustrating and everything frustrating but he subjected it to this idea that it's temporary that it's transient that it can't be figured out because we're here one moment and gone the next and we don't even know what god's doing we're here such a short amount of time we can't even see the big picture and we ask why 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 Paul says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God did this after the fall of Adam and Eve. He made the world like this in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. And he goes on to talk about how we are the firstborn of that new creation. And it's because of Christ that things will be set right. Right now, it's all Hebel. It's all futility. It's meaningless, some people would say. I would take the word breath short, temporary, transient. But Paul says someday in Christ, it'll be set right. Someday. And this word futility, by the way, that Paul uses, is the same one used for Ecclesiastes and the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. It means that when Paul read his Old Testament in Greek, because that's what sometimes they use in Jesus' day, that he saw this same word he uses in 820, Romans 820. He's connecting it, I think. It's a New Testament direct reference to Ecclesiastes. Paul also talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're in time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's real close to what Solomon's going to say by the end of the book. That These things are just temporal. They're transient. They're good for our time. God can use them sometimes if they're not sin. But they're not eternal. They're not what matters most. David Gibson, again, his book, Living Life Backwards, he says part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers. It it eludes our comprehension. And by being itself elusive and perplexing, is therefore a better way to explain this than the book of Ecclesiastes? Proverbs 30. Picks up the same message. Surely I'm more stupid than any man. I mean, that's another good way to start a little proverb, isn't it? Read that one to yourself out loud. Surely I'm more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom. Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind into his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So not only is life a breath, but the fact that it's like that and everything in the world is like that frustrates us. So it's not just that Hevel is short and transient and temporary, but sometimes he uses it to say things are so short that it frustrates us. It's so frustrating that the world is like this. Well, that's the bad news. That's point one. If he stopped there, and most people do, they just say that's the theme of the book and they're done. And then you're going to view this book very pessimistically. You're going to say this book is no fun. I don't want to read it. I can't figure it out. And when I do try to figure it out, it just sounds very unbiblical. Well, it's not. It's written by the one shepherd, that's God. It's God's wisdom through Solomon put on paper. So there's three themes I said, and all three of them should be held together so that we come out with the right view of the book. So you don't just take when you tell somebody the gospel, you don't just stop and say, "You know what? You're a sinner. Goodbye." He doesn't do that. He starts off with that, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and builds a case. He preaches a message. So the second point in his overall sermon is enjoy God's good gifts. Now, How can that be? How how can you enjoy God's good gifts whenever everything is temporary, transient? We'll talk more about that as we go along, but just the short version is, that because things are short and transient and don't last very long and life is but a breath, we ought to enjoy the times that God does give us peace and joy and happiness and family and work and money. I said earlier that that Hevel is repeated 38 times in this book of Ecclesiastes. And when a word is repeated, it tells us what the book is about. So people will say, there it is, Hevel. Life is a breath, or vanity, or whatever they want to translate it as. That's the meaning of the book because it's repeated 38 times. Well, if we're counting, God is mentioned 40 times, 40 times in this book. The heart is mentioned 40 times. Wisdom is mentioned 52 times. And the word good is mentioned 52 times. So, yeah, there's heaven, but there's God and good, goodness. And there's something about the heart there. The clues in the book are there for us to see this theme. This theme that people miss, or, or maybe they say, well, it's there, but not that important. It's there. In fact, there's a refrain that occurs over and over. In music, a refrain occurs multiple times. In a book of the Bible, a refrain often tells you a major point of the book, a major theme of the book. So let's look at this refrain of enjoying God's good gifts. 224, chapter 2, verse 24. So he spends two whole chapters talking about how everything is like a breath. It's like vapor. It's Hevel. And then he concludes that section by saying, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. This is not man's thinking here. He's saying this comes from God. These things, this work and food, drink, it comes from God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God, without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering, collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too, and and here's his frustration about that. This too is hevel and striving after wind. Striving after wind is a good definition of hevel. You're chasing the wind. You're trying to grab the wind. I didn't even mention that, that, that striving and chasing the wind will come up multiple times in this book. But interlaced throughout the book is this idea of enjoying God's good gifts. 3.12, we see it again. Right in the middle of this chapter on time and how God has designed everything. Uh, 3, 3.12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for them than to Rejoice. And to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. 322 closes out this book, or this chapter, with this I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I think many of us would just fall down and not want to live if we realize how short life truly is. And he's saying here that God gives us joy and happiness and we think about those things. We don't think that much about death, do we? Now we ought to more in our culture, but we're not constantly worried because we know if you're with The Lord, if you're his, then he is giving you these good things to enjoy. 8.15, a couple more times this is used here. You just keep seeing this refrain. It sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? 8.15, so I committed pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun, except to eat, to drink, to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. We'll talk more about what under the sun means Uh, in the next passage in Ecclesiastes. Last refrain here in chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. This is not Epicureanism. The Bible talks a lot uh, against that. In the Old and New Testament, Paul says uh, in the New Testament that that people were going around in those days, the Epicureans, and they were saying, let us eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's today's modern thinking, the worldly thinking. Let's party it up. doesn't matter after this life. That's not what Solomon's saying. He's saying there is a God and we're going to see him at death. But in this life that's so temporary, so transient, just like a breath. Enjoy God's good gifts. Enjoy God's good gifts. He has given them to you. They're meant to be good. Eat, drink, be merry. Not because tomorrow we die. We don't know how long we have, but because God has given them to us. So we see joy occurring over and over in this book. It's why many commentators have named even their commentaries after that. I mentioned last week Bill Barrick at the Master's Seminary. He named his commentary the Philippians of the Old Testament because the book of Philippians in the New Testament has this theme of joy. Chuck Swindoll entitled his book on Ecclesiastes, Living on the Ragged Edge, Finding Joy in a World Gone Man. Pastor Doug Wilson entitled his book, Joy at the End of the Tether. So there's these two ideas that we've looked at so far. That life is short and it's difficult to understand. But also God gives us joy. God gives us good things. You know when the Jews read this book? They read it on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles looks back to when Israel came out of the wilderness. Remember, they lived in tents. They lived in tabernacles. And it's celebrated uh, throughout history and even today at the end of the harvest season. When everyone is joyful, when they're thankful, when they're glad, they read Ecclesiastes because they think the book is about joy. They think the book is about enjoying God's good gifts. It's it's not a book about some old man's bitter, pessimistic sayings as he looks back on life. It's about joy, they're saying. It's really ironic that that people look at this book and, and think that it's not got any joy, any good news in it. When you understand the book, it leads you to joy. In fact, some think this is an evangelistic book. I don't go that far, but I, I think that there's some verses which certainly could be used evangelistically. That life is so hard and and we can't figure it out. And what's the only answer? God. And so some people have come to know the Lord and be saved by the Lord Jesus because they read Ecclesiastes and understood the message. All right, the last one we'll look at quickly. Fear God and obey Him. So there's three points to the message on how to view life in Ecclesiastes. And this one is mostly at the end, but you'll see it a little bit throughout. Fear God and obey Him. The book talks about God in many ways. It teaches theology proper. teaches on the attributes of God. It'll show us that God is sovereign and in control over man. It teaches about God's providence, that He created, that He's perfect, that He's just, that He's holy. All of these are we're going to see in the book. He's always present, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows everything, all-powerful. He preserves His people. He requires reverential fear, and He requires obedience. I'll let you search out all the verses that mention God in this book, and you can read through them. You're going to find 10 or 12 that deal with our obedience and our fear and our worship of God. But well, let's just go towards the end of the book. 1213, the conclusion of the book, the big one. Commentators and people stop and don't understand. They stop at verse 8 and chapter 12 and say, Well, there's the end. Somebody added this on later, they think, because the book was so pessimistic. Somebody had to add something to it to end it well. 1213 is still written by Solomon, right? And twelve nine, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught. And he goes on in verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Can't understand the book unless you keep that in mind. God is present throughout. God is present everywhere. Let's look at a couple more there. 7.13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. God is sovereign. 7.18 It is good for you to grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. If you fear God, you understand something about wisdom, you understand something about foolishness and how not to go into it. One more, verse 26 here, 726. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So much about God there. We don't have time. It's mentioned, God's name is mentioned 40 times in Ecclesiastes. So keep these in view as you read the book, as we go through the book. These are the three points of the main message, how to view life. If I was to sum it up, I could say live without reserve for God. Enjoy things. Live without any reserve for God. Die without any regrets to go be with Him forever. This doesn't mean do what you want and sin. Paul says, no, no, in the New Testament. Don't ever say that. But you're saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved. Your eternity is set. Now go live for God's glory and enjoy what he's given you. If you know the Bible, go and make wise decisions and enjoy life and glorify God in doing that. Here's how Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If you don't have God, if you don't have the Lord as your Savior, this book isn't going to make much sense. Most of the Bible won't make much sense. You'll probably see some things that will point out your sin and point you to God. But this book is written for God's people. It's written to teach us something. It's written to give us wisdom. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, then turn from your sins and trust in him. Solomon's going to say that. He's not going to use the name Jesus, but he's going to say that when he talks about the fear of the Lord. Lord, we come before you today to consider what you have taught us, what your word shows us. We are foolish. We are here only for a short amount of time. We're like grass. We need you, Lord, to show us the way to give us your wisdom. We need to realize who we are. And we need to know who you are. So that we might live rightly before you. So that we might glorify you in all the things that we do. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to grow through this series on Ecclesiastes. And help us to fear you and obey your commandments. In the name of our Lord, who enables us to do that. Amen.